0: Well, I hope you guys had a merry Christmas and are gonna have a happy new year as well. Um, Ken is uh, away visiting family in Tennessee and so I'm honored to uh, share the word with you guys this morning out of Jonah chapter one. Uh, for Christmas this year, some of my sons got uh, space themed presents, your books about outer space. You know when you read books for your kids and you're just like, I didn't know that, I do not know that, and you look at your spouse, you're like, did you know that? Know that, um, you know, we're parents. We're supposed to know everything, right? Um, my kids got models of solar system. It says are great distances on there, and they try to come and quiz me about, hey, Dad, you know how far uh, Neptune is from the Earth? It's like normally doesn't come up when I work, but <laughs> <laughs> tell me, son. <laughs> they got Yoda slippers, stickers of astronauts. And, they've, uh, and stars, and they've tastefully stuck those to my furniture. Um, it's fun though to have space, outer space brought down to my level. But uh, over the break, uh, our office was closed and I had some time to, to watch some movies and my wife and I watched some sci-fi films about outer space in there too. And you know, there's a, a few different kinds of space films, right? There's the alien encounter, right? There's, they're out doing research on the that final frontier and everything goes haywire, everything goes wrong. And, um, and then there's that other kind where mankind's destroyed the earth and they have to go find a new place to live, right? Those are kind of some of the main ones and they mix those together. Um, but I realized as I was watching some of these movies that there's another type of space movie, one where people are trying to run away from their problems and space is just another place where they can reach that farthest outpost, maybe their problems might not catch up with them. But coming back down to reality, we don't really need outer space to run from our problems. We looked at Jonah, he was running from his problems, and we all do it regularly in different ways. But the problem is our earth is round, and you usually end up running back to where you started when you run away from your problems. Because our problems are on the inside, right? It reminds me, though, as uh, you know, talking about traveling, Jonah hopping on a ship, Uh, an encounter I had 10 years ago. I got a call that somebody needed help moving. It was a nice elderly woman and I'd never met her before. She's not part of our church, but she was uh, downsizing uh, to an apartment. A friend of mine came with me and we met her at her, her new place and we carpooled together in the truck and we drove over to her old residence and she was telling me these stories of her and her dear husband and, her, and the adventures that they took together. After they retired, they got a boat and they sailed around the world. They spent time off the Ivory Coast of Africa, Southeast Asia, and she spoke with such great fondness of those times and of her husband. It was really sweet. It made me sad that she was all alone now. Um, like Kind of like the story Up, that movie Up, right? That kid's movie. But this couple actually got to go on those adventures together. And so as she's telling these stories and we pull up to her home. We arrive at her house. It was a beautiful home. It's in a nice neighborhood. We came into the house and um, we start working and I notice that there's a grumpy man sitting on the recliner. Her dear husband. It was an awkward move <laughs> helping her as he's watching us move her things out. And as we loaded her few belongings out, which included several cases of beer and liquor, I thought to myself, there's a story here (laughs) that I don't know and I'm not sure I'm going to (laughs) ask. But it stuck with me, you know, through, through the years that you can go on great adventures, you can sail the seven seas, you can experience all the cultures of the world, and it still might not solve the problems that plague you. The problems that plague your marriage or your family or your soul. Because where we run to, there's certain things about ourselves that we can't escape. And it brings us to Jonah. Now, Jonah, we're familiar with the story, um, but we're not familiar with all all the details necessarily, and it's a good thing to be reminded of this morning because, well, I was praying and this is what I felt like God wanted to say, so we're here and you got to listen. But Jonah, his name means dove. He was the son of Emetai. He was a prophet from Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer means the winepress of the well. I've got a picture, uh, a map up here of where Gath-Hefer is. Um, so you see that red little dot there in the middle. That's Nazareth. And Gath-Hefer is, I mean, the name is being covered up by the red little dot there. So it's just two miles north of Gath-Hefer. I mean, it's really close. So Nazareth is where Jesus grew up in that town. Um, some 700 years later, uh, but Gathifer is just two miles north. For reference, Chick-fil-A is three miles away from here. So I have that memorized. So Gathifer is closer to Nazareth than Chick-fil-A to Calvary Spokane. But it was just off the main route, the Via Maris. Uh, Ken mentioned that last week. Via Maris was the way of the sea and um, The Via Maris cut through Megiddo and then passed right by Nazareth and Gathapher as you went up through uh, next to the Sea of Galilee and then on to the north. It was the main travel route uh, through that region. And so the Israelites, historically, who experienced the worst of the treatment from invading armies, it was the people in Galilee. It was the people in Nazareth and Gathapher, the people in Tiberias and Chorazin and Bethsaida there in Galilee, because any invading army, the Arameans, the Syrians, the Assyrians, as is the topic today, or the Babylonians later on, they would come from the north, and they would take that way of the sea, the Via Maris, and they would come through Galilee first. And this is, so any atrocity of war was experienced first and most fully by the Galileans and Jonah in his hometown of gath So that gives us a little context. But outside of the book of Jonah, there's only one reference to the prophet Jonah. It's in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. And in that passage, it says, Jeroboam II was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebohamoth to the Dead Sea. In accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from gath Hefer. So Jonah had made uh, a prophecy in 2 Kings 14, chapter, or chapter 14, verse 25, and it was a positive one. It was a good one. It was about Israel and how God was gonna restore their boundaries from Labo Hamath, which is north of Damascus, all the way down to the Dead Sea, this huge territory, and it came to pass. So Jonah has, you know, he's batting 100. He's got a great prophecy business going here. But then he has a new job. And it has to do with Nineveh, that great city. Now, Nineveh was noted by the ancients, by the Romans and the Greeks, as being the greatest city in the world in its day. And we're talking, we're somewhere in the 8th century, 750, seven, uh, 700 to 750 BC. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, located on the Tigris River. And so you see there in green, that's the Fertile Crescent, um, the The bottom left there is Palestine, uh, modern or or Israel, and you can see the Dead Sea. And if you come uh, over that crescent towards the top and to the right of that green area, that's uh, Nineveh. So you can see where it says Assyria. Just above that, the capital, is Nineveh. So it was actually to the north, uh, the northern section of the Fertile Crescent. Um, And remember, it was the Assyrians, the Assyrian Empire, who conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, in 722 BC, and they carted off the people of Israel into exile, and then 140 years later, Judah, who was still around the southern portion of the kingdom, was captured and conquered by Babylon, and they were taken off into captivity into Babylon. So it was the Assyrians who plagued northern Israel. Today, Nineveh would be located in northern Iraq by the city of Mosul, Mosul in northern Iraq. And um, it's interesting, uh, Mosul uh, was taken over and part, large sections of the city were destroyed by ISIL back in 2014. You remember the Arab Spring and all the things that were happening there. And um, one of the things that ISIL destroyed was Jonah's tomb in Mosul. And so this is a picture, of this actually Jonah's tomb. There's a mosque over that, uh, over the, uh, the tomb there. Before there was a mosque, there was like an orthodox church, but in 2014, uh, in Mosul, that ISIL came and destroyed uh, a lot of Jonah's tomb. It, there, it's called Nebi Yunus. Yunus is the name for Jonah uh, in Arabic, and so even today, people still remember what Jonah did for that region. And actually, it's located in in Iraq. They have provinces, not like states like us, which are which are great. It's like Canada, where they have provinces. It's not quite as good, right? But uh, in Iraq, they have got provinces, and Nineveh. Uh, it's actually, the, the province is called Nineveh, where Mosul is. So even today, there's the memory of the city, the ancient city of Nineveh, still alive. Um, now, that's a little bit about Jonah, a little bit about Nineveh, uh, where those things are. And, and this this chapter begins with the Lord speaking to Jonah. Now, the Lord, if you read through Jonah, which isn't hard, i After today, you might read through it. There's only 40 verses in all of Jonah. There's four chapters, 40 verses. It's a short prophecy. It's different than the other prophets. It's more of a narrative. It's not uh, a fiction. It's not uh, a story. It's not even an allegory. It's it's a historical account of what happened to Jonah. And the Lord doesn't speak much. He speaks just a, a couple times. But he speaks at the very beginning, and he speaks at the very end. Right, this is God, he's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He has the first word and he has the last word and it's true here in the account with Jonah. But his instruction is go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So the Lord speaks to Jonah, he gives him a command, go to Nineveh and preach. Why the command? Because their wickedness. Their wickedness has come up before him. And there's an encouragement here because there's a lot of wicked, evil things that happen to us individually. There's a lot of wicked things that happen in the world. And this is a reminder that God sees these things. They come up before him. He he knows them and he takes action. We're in a, a cycle of society here where our great affluence through freedom One, by self-sacrificing generations past, has led to a lot of self-centered entitlement. And people sacrifice, but they usually sacrifice just to make their own lives better, or to better themselves, or to treat yourself. It's a new self-centered approach to life that's embraced by the culture, even at the highest levels. So I was doing a little research online. Um, I was on Vanderbilt's website, not because I want to go to school there, but... I don't know how I end up where I end up on on the internet. Click buttons and you end up places. But Dr. Edward Rubin, professor of law at Vanderbilt, I'm gonna quote him a little bit from his website here. He's talking about culture and morality. And he says, traditional morality, which many people still regard as morality itself, is really just one particular approach, more accurately described as morality of higher purpose. Individuals were supposed to direct their personal behavior toward the salvation of their soul. And they were supposed to direct their political behavior around the service to the state. You know, like that saying, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. The new morality is based on concepts of self-fulfillment, Rubin says. You're supposed to live the best life you possibly can for yourself. And there's essentially nothing beyond the experience of life that justifies it. It just justifies itself in terms of your own experience. Similarly, the goal of a modern administrative state is to serve its citizens, to enable each of them to live the most fulfilling life that they possibly can. Modern morality demands that the state provide individuals with the necessary services, including education, health care, and if they're needy, subsistence and housing. The declining morality of the higher purpose fuels both conservative politics and the traditional interpretation of Christianity, Rubin says. In earlier times, people understood Christianity in different terms. As the morality of self-fulfillment becomes dominant, Christianity may be reinterpreted once more in a manner that's largely consistent with the new morality. The other possibility is that it will decay. The new morality already encourages people to shop for the denomination that best fits their spiritual needs In the future, they may even shop for an entire range of world religions and philosophies. So, as I read that, I just think to myself, here we have an educator at one of the more prestigious law schools in the country where judges, lawmakers, lawyers are trained, who lives and teaches as if morality is subject to change, essentially as if God doesn't exist. Or if God does exist, that he just needs to hop on the bus of changing morality like the rest of us, you know, with that five-star Uber-rated driver, Lucifer, just hop on that bus, God, with the rest of us. It's interesting to note that according to his biography, Dr. Rubin has served as a consultant to the People's Republic of China on an administrative law and to the Russian Federation on payments law, but it's probably not relevant. It's just interesting, it's not relevant, probably. But... The creator god does exist and he sees. He sees all that transpires on the face of the earth. For the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro over all the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are fully devoted to him. 2 Chronicles 16:9. He sees what's done in public, he sees what's done in secret, and there comes a point in man's rebellion, whether personally or as a society, where the wickedness of man comes up before God. And God says, it's enough. It's at this point that he sends a preacher, somebody like Jonah, to share the news that man needs to repent. Perhaps that's for you today. Perhaps you've been living in sin. Perhaps it's greed, a desire for money, and you see people as stepping stones to get paid. Maybe it's lust a desire for illicit sex and pornography. Maybe it's anger and you desire to belittle other people, people made in God's image and likeness to make yourself bigger than you are. Maybe you're living a sort of new morality where all you think of is yourself and how you're entitled to be happy and other people must give it to you. The Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth is calling you to repent Your sin has destroyed your life and it's gonna destroy your life for all eternity. Your sin, whether large or small, has come up before God. It's an unbearable stench and you need to turn to him. And that's why God sent Jesus. He sent him to the cross to take away your sin and its eternal consequences. So turn to him. He'll cleanse you. He'll restore a right morality. He's paid the fare. Put your trust in Jesus. Believe that he died and rose again for you. And he's gonna take away your sin. So you can be right with God today. So don't wait another day. It's the last day of the year. It'll be the best decision you've made all year if you give your life to Jesus today. But as far as the people of Nineveh, they needed to hear something like this too. Because their eternal ticket was gonna be punched in 40 days when their city would be destroyed. The people of Nineveh were renowned For their wickedness. It was a great city, as the Romans and the Greeks noted, but to God it was great for its evil. When they conquered, they enslaved the children, they raped the women, and they tortured men. J. Vernon McGee notes that the Ninevites would take men to the desert, and they would bury the men in the sand up to where only their heads were sticking out. And then they would pierce their tongues and put a strip of leather in their mouth through their tongue so that they could never close their mouths, so that the heat and then the dehydration would drive them insane before they died. It was a form of savagery we haven't seen, well, maybe since October. Living in Galilee on the northern border of Israel, Jonah likely had firsthand experience with these Assyrians and their raiding parties. He probably knew people who were brutalized during these raids, and this all came from the heart of the empire, that great city of Nineveh. So God was sending Jonah to preach there. Now, preach, preach for what, really? I mean, if if the message that Jonah was going to preach was just a notice that they were going to be destroyed, you know, good luck for you Ninevites. What purpose was there in preaching, just to tell them you're going to be destroyed? Sorry, kids. But there are some people who hold this sort of fatalistic view of reality, that preaching doesn't really change people, that there's no real free will, that we're just playing out a script. Man only has the illusion of choice, and there's no real choice. It's a fascinating perspective, I think it's wrong. Um, it's, and actually, there's, there's two different forms of fatalism. There's atheistic fatalism, so as I read these space you know, books with my kids, and you know, you watch things about astronomers online and different kind of scientists, you realize that there's this atheistic fatalism out there, like a guy like Sam Harris. In atheistic fatalism, everything that happens is the result of chemical and physical processes playing themselves out. Here, Newton's third law of motion in physics is not only present, but it's king. That for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction that atoms are bumping into each other, inevitably making molecules or breaking them apart, releasing and absorbing energy as only they must according to their properties and how things have been set. But who set them? I don't know, we don't ask those things. Therefore, everything that has been done, is being done, will be done, is a result not of free, free will or agency, but of pool balls bouncing around and spinning as they must. Consequently, the ideas of responsibility loses its meaning because I don't have a choice, right? I'm just carrying out the chemical processes and the physical processes that my body has to carry out, so there's no responsibility for what I do. It's an atheistic, a godless fatalism. But there's also a theistic fatalism. In theistic fatalism, Everything that happens is a result of God making it happen. There is free will and agency, but the only one who really has it is God. This is an extreme form of Calvinism. All the good things I do, all the bad things I do have been predetermined by God. Our salvation has been determined by God. Our sin, our gross sins have been determined by God. And here we have no choice in the matter. We're just carrying out what he's programmed us to do. It's already been written. It's a theistic fatalism. And there's people who are hopeless because that's their mentality. They feel like, I'm not saved, I can't be saved because only God can make that choice for me. And so they're, they're depressed or they live in sin because of that. But there is a third option. I think it's the biblical one. It's that God, in his sovereign choice, has made man in his image. Man who also has that same sovereign, free ability to make legitimate choices to accept God or to reject him in our lives. A true, real, consequential choice to serve the Lord, real free will, real agency. And doesn't the weight of scripture, with all the instruction for godly living, including even the purpose of the testimony of scripture, bear down on this reality that we must choose whether we will serve the Lord? We know what God wants. He went to great lengths to show us. Our Lord Jesus chose the cross to show us how greatly he desires us to know him, to believe in him, to live with him forever, if we would choose him. Listen to the Old Testament, Ezekiel 33, 11. It says, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. turn. Turn from your evil ways. Is, now we have to ask ourselves, is this a real request from God? Is, or is he just blowing smoke? He's, in fact, begging people, turn, make that choice, repent from your evil and live. God begging man to choose life. God's always given man a choice from the very beginning in the garden until the final trumpet is blown. We have that choice. It comes up over and over again in Scripture. It's not just Ezekiel 33, 11. Joshua 24, 14 through 15. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served and beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in the land that you dwell but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? Joshua is saying, choose. You have a choice. The sovereign Lord says, choose who you're gonna serve. Acts 2, let's go to the New Testament. Acts 2, 37 through 41. When the people heard this, that is the preaching when, at Pentecost when Peter was preaching, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with, with many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. So this is, you know, these, he's preaching, and the people are convicted by the Lord, and they say, what do we do? And he says, repent, Just turn, right? That's making a choice, it's believing in the Lord, choose to, to serve him. And he warned them, and he pleaded with them, and then they accepted, and those who accepted were baptized. So that's why you need to get baptized if you're not getting baptized yet. The 28th, Robin made an announcement, you gotta get baptized, But just as God pleaded with the people through Joshua to turn to the Lord, and just as God would plead with the Jews at Pentecost to repent and be baptized, and just as God pleads with you to turn to Christ, so God desires the people of Nineveh to repent. And if they would repent, he would withhold his judgment upon them. This is the character of God. God was sending Jonah to Nineveh that he might preach against it, to preach so that the Ninevites would repent and experience the saving grace of God. So Jonah has this command, and Jonah knows the Lord, and he chooses to run away. And we can think of all sorts of reasons why Jonah might flee, especially if you're in chapter one and you haven't read beyond chapter one, or if you don't know much about the Ninevites, but if you do know a little bit, you might think, man, it's a great, it's a great city, there's a lot of people there, it would be intimidating to go into a, a great city and just start preaching Something that wasn't very nice, right? People won't like it. If you go there and you say, hey, Nineveh is going to be destroyed, then what are are people going to say? What are people going to do? They're going to roll their eyes at me. They're going to slam the door in my face. What's going to happen? Or the people were cruel, right? I mean, it might not just be them being rude to me. These are violent people. I could die. They could take me, they could lock me up in prison, they could beat me, they could torture me, they could bury me in the sand and leave me to die of dehydration and I go insane. What what could happen to me? But the real reason is actually given later on, chapters three and four. Spoiler alert if you don't know the story of Jonah. The Ninevites repent at the preaching and then the word says in chapter three, verses 10 through four, two, When God saw what they did, the Ninevites, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he'd threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So Jonah ran not because he was self-conscious, public speaking. It wasn't because he was afraid of what they might do to them, to him. It was because he wanted the Ninevites to get what was coming to them. He wanted the destruction to come. He wanted cold, hard justice. And God wanted to give them new life, a second chance. At the command of the Lord, Jonah got up and went, but he went in the opposite direction. The Via Maris was there. He was supposed to hop on it and go north, but he packed his bags. Maybe people knew that the Lord had spoken to him, and they're like, oh, there's Jonah, the prophet, going to do the Lord's work. He's like, yeah, guys, see you later. I'll be back. Hops on the road and heads south, the opposite direction that takes him to the sea. And when he got to the port, the port of Joppa on the Mediterranean, I think we've got a picture here. And so, uh, so Israel is that yellow, big yellow chunk in the middle. The Mediterranean Sea is on the left. And then Philistia, there in green, at the very top of Philistia, right where it basically intersects with Israel, the yellow part, that's the city of Joppa. Now today, Joppa is actually in Tel Aviv. So if you go to Israel and you, you, you fly into Israel, you're gonna fly into Tel Aviv, and Tel Aviv actually changed the name to Tel Aviv Jaffa, which is Jaffa, Jaffa Jaffa. And so that's where the big port was, that's where people sailed out of Israel was in Jaffa. So still there today, it's a real place. Jonah's not a made-up story. It's a real historical place, real historical people and places. But he got to the port, he used the tithe money, he saved up to buy himself a ticket Went in the opposite direction, Tarshish, perhaps Spain. They don't know exactly where Tarshish is. He was trying to get away as far as possible, the opposite way, west. And from here, you know how it goes. A storm comes on the ship when he actually gets out to sea. He's sleeping in the in below deck, and the crew tosses Jonah to their great anguish into the sea. And the storm ceases. A great creature, a, you know, a fish of some kind. We don't know what it is swallows Jonah, three days and three nights he's in there, eventually it vomits him up on the shore, and, uh, and if you're like me, when you, you know, when I was a kid, they had the kid books, you know, and when Jonah was vomited up on the shore, he looked up and Nineveh was right there, and Nineveh's not right there, it's like 700 miles away, they, they lied to me when I was a kid, <laughs> tried to ruin my faith, but I studied. But from there, he, he repents, and he goes, he preaches in Nineveh. It's interesting. You know, the Lord lets him get away, right? He, he packs his bags. The Lord lets him pack his bags. He hits the road. He goes the opposite direction. The Lord lets him do that. He, he lets him get all the way to Joppa. It's a long way. You know, dozens of miles. He's there. He buys a ticket with his tithe money. Hops on the boat. It's like... The skies look sunny. It's all good. It's like maybe the Lord is in it. And haven't we thought that same thing when we're doing what we're not supposed to be doing? Everything's smooth sailing. It's as if God lets Jonah get just outside of the Israelite territory into the wide, wild sea to prove a point. You see, in the ancient pagan world, it was thought that the deities... Only had control over their local ge- geography. So there was the gods of the Amorites and the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Moabites, but they were really only effective within their regions. And it's like God let Jonah just get outside of Israel into the, the wild sea so he could prove that the earth is mine and the fullness thereof, that he's not a God of the hills or a God of a few square miles, that all things belong to the Lord. There's nowhere in heaven, on earth, under the earth, earth or in the sea that's outside of his jurisdiction. It's outside of his sight or his presence. As the psalmist says in Psalm 139, 1 through 12, you search me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you, for the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Jonah should have known that. The psalm had already been written. But isn't it also true for the Christian that we may choose to disobey the Lord, and he may let us wander for a season, but he might say that that's enough, Drew. Time to come back now. You've strayed too far, prone to wander. Now, there's times when it's okay to flee, right? There's times when it's okay to run. He's running here. It's not always bad to run. It's a natural question. Is there a time when running or fleeing is okay? Um, you know, I'm, my wife and I have been watching not just sci fi films, but there's this uh, World War II documentary that we, we've been really enjoying, and just uh, feats of courage and, and heroism. Um, and, and guys doing things that they, you know, ordinary guys doing things in war that uh, would haunt them the rest of their lives, but they did it to save their brothers, they did it to save people from the Nazis. And um, they stood and fought. But there are some times where they, even they would get up and run, where they'd turn themselves in when they were severely outnumbered. But there's other times when we should run, the times of great temptation, when it's good to run. There are times when we find ourselves in a setting of temptation or impropriety and in these settings it's it's best to just get out of there whether or not we we put ourselves in that place or we just happen to end up there remember joseph was serving in his master potiphar's house and potiphar's wife made advances at him and it says he ran out of the house that's the way to do it. it you know she lied he ended up in prison but his integrity before the lord was kept 1 Corinthians 10:13 says, no temptation has overtaken you that it's not common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so there's times where we just need to get out of that situation. We need to run. We need to escape. We shouldn't be, be there because of the temptation. But there's times even where we're in great peril, Physical harm or abuse and danger, and it's okay to get out of harm's way. Remember when Jesus had been born to Mary? Remember, there's like a season of the year where we remember that, I don't remember. Might jingle a bell or something. But after he was born, Jesus' family, they found themselves in great peril. Matthew chapter two, verse 13 says, when the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So we see that Jesus, though he was a baby, and his family fled for their lives instead of standing their ground and fighting or letting the angels smite the soldiers in Herod. The angel told them to run, and so they ran. Jesus said a similar thing. Uh, on the uh, the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse in Luke chapter 21, verses 10 through 21, he says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and those in the country not enter the city. Cities had walls, they were like fortresses, but he's saying, when you guys see the destruction that's going to come on Jerusalem, flee, run, Get out. You don't want to be there. It's going to be horrible. It reminds me of this time my wife and I were on a date. We were downtown. And we were doing the dinner and a movie thing. Um, Before the dinner, we were just, uh, we got there a little early, so we were strolling around through the mall, and there was a commotion at the front door. And my wife and I, we were curious to see what was happening there. And, you know, as we were getting closer to the front door, we saw some flashing lights out there and kind of slowed down a little bit. And then uh, an officer in SWAT gear with a, an assault rifle brushed past my shoulder, and he was hightailing it for the front door, and I thought, we should go that way, not that way. Let's go that way. So we went back to the, you know, the restaurant, and as the mall was in lockdown, we ate our meal, because what else are you going to do? It, nothing materialized from it. Um, there was a threat outside, and, and they took care of it, nothing materialized, but you know, it was appropriate for the officer to go ahead, and it was appropriate for me and my wife, with no training, two people that would just be in the way, to go the other way, to flee. And, uh, and we watched our movie, and I don't know if it was a space movie or not, I can't remember, it was too long ago. So there's times where it's okay to run, that's not all the times, but there's other times where it's less okay to run, and it's not an exhaustive list, but you know, at the, at the mall, again, it was okay for my wife and I to get out of the way, but it, but it wouldn't be okay If the officer tried to use us as a human shield and he get out too, you know, he has a responsibility. It's a difficult responsibility that he signed up for to step into danger, to protect the lives and property of people like us, and he did good. You know, similarly as a husband, I feel that responsibility for the security and the safety of my wife and children, it would be Doubly wrong if both I and the officer jump behind my wife to use her as a human shield. <laughs> it'd be doubly wrong. And as a pastor, I feel a responsibility to secure as reasonably as possible the physical and spiritual protection of people who come through the doors here at church. But just because something is hard or might have difficulties doesn't mean it should be avoided. Sometimes it's our responsibility, it's our duty, it's our obligation to step up and to not run. It reminds me, you know, a few years ago, there was questions of what would happen if we were to reopen the church during the pandemic, right? What if the plague breaks out here? What if the government comes after us uh, as a church? Or what if the government comes after me? Because all my names are on all the documents, you know? But we felt what God wanted us to do was open, to gather together and to worship him. And so we did. And none of those fears were realized. It was the right thing to do, to come together to worship the Lord. And so many people are crippled by fears of the bad things that could happen. We have to take into account, obviously, risks, and we mitigate risks as best as we can. But we've gotta go out our front door. We've gotta go to work. We've gotta do hard things. And it's not okay to duck out just because it's hard. Oftentimes, we need to... Endure, learn to endure like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we want to run not just because something's difficult, but we just want to do something different. It's not out of fear, but it's because we've lost heart. We become tired. We're sick and tired. We're tired of the way we're treated. We feel unappreciated. We're looked over for the promotion. Our ideas aren't taken seriously. We're not properly loved or respected. So we look for a new job, a new spouse, a new home, whatever it might be because we have a different hope or we had a hope that was never realized and a hope deferred makes the heart sick. So we try to run to get out of the situation just because we want something better and we've lost heart. Other times we run because we want something better not because we've lost heart but just our hearts are set on the wrong things. As Jesus said, there's a desire for other things that chokes out the life in the parable of the sower. I remember when I was getting close to graduating high school, I was thinking, you know, what should I do after I graduate? What am I supposed to do anyways? And it occurred to me, as a Christian, that I should ask God, I should pray. I hadn't asked him yet. And some of you guys are in that situation, you're in a difficulty in your life and you're, you're wondering what, what I should do, what, I, what should I do, and you haven't prayed. <laughs> Why don't you pray? Ask the Lord. He's our great help. So I got down on my knees in my bedroom all alone, and I prayed to God, asking him what he wanted me to do after I graduated. And I felt like he said, I want you to go into ministry. And I promptly ended the prayer meeting. I notified God that I'd not be, that's not gonna be what I'm doing, Lord. I'm gonna continue my education, I'm gonna make some money, and if you allow me to be profitable, I'll even give you back a certain percentage of it. That was my plan, and I wanted God to rubber stamp it in that, that prayer meeting, and not send me in the opposite direction. I had never done anything at church. I'd never volunteered. I didn't go to youth group. I didn't read the Bible. I hardly ever prayed. And when it was, it was usually about a girl I liked or about winning a baseball game. Ministry was for holy people, not for regular people like me. And as I was leaving that quiet prayer meeting, I felt the Lord say, Okay, but it's going to be more difficult afterwards. It's a weird thing to think or to hear as a high schooler. But later on, I found out what he meant. You can't outrun the call of God on your life. His gifts and his callings are irrevocable. But you can rack up a lot of student debt receiving that education. I found that out too. So I ran from God not because I lost heart. I just wanted to do something different. And some of us are in that place. We know what God wants us to do. We're not interested. I I wanna do something different. Some of us are afraid. Some of us know what we're supposed to do but we've lost heart because things are hard and and some of us we just have a desire for other things. And so we run. And we run in different ways. Usually it's a progression. First place we run is in our hearts. We run in our emotions. When we decide to run we make that decision deep down inside. Things are tough, they're not going the way we want. We check out. We run in our hearts and we announce it with our mouths. The mouth which is the speaker that's connected to our heart. And so we verbalize it. Sometimes we run by showing disdain. We've gotten sick and tired of something or someone and we're done with them. Comes out in contempt or disdain. We consider that relationship worthless, no longer worthy. Is that person worthy of my respect or love? The thing that I was doing isn't going to plan and we curse it openly or under our breath, our words follow after our heart. So sometimes there's that disdain, sometimes there's an ambivalence. We say things like, I don't care, whatever you want, or I don't, I don't even know anymore. We signal that we don't wanna put in the effort because our heart isn't there. And then after that, silence sets in. We just check out altogether. We hide behind our phone We no longer respond or acknowledge that person. We roll our eyes, turn a cold shoulder, snicker in disgust. We go to our part of the home, and once somebody goes silent, usually the end is at hand, and the run is then physical. We've stopped the dialogue, we think it's no longer of use, we pack our bags, we hit the door, we grab a box at the office, we load up our personal things and leave. And some of us have experienced the pain of people packing up and leaving on us when they should have stayed. We carry with that, that hurt of the friend who had been just using us to get ahead, the coworker who dropped out of a project and left you hanging and overwhelmed, a father we wish wouldn't have given up on the family, a spouse who didn't consider us worth sticking around for, and it's painful. And then we become tempted to do those same things. We feel like it's an option because it's been done to us. People on the run usually, though, aren't thinking about you or other people. They're just thinking about themselves and trying to get away. They get tunnel vision on escaping. Anything in their way is a necessary obstacle to overcome. Or like the adulterous woman, Proverbs 30, 20 says, she eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. She's just thinking about herself. We can run in all these same ways for all the same reasons from the Lord. I'm not sure where you're at today in your walk with the Lord. Maybe you are close with him and your relationship is excellent. Things are going well. Perhaps you don't know the Lord. You've never walked with him and you're not quite sure how you ended up here this morning anyways. But he's calling you and you've refused to answer. Perhaps you knew him once and you lost heart because things got hard. You don't go on walks with them anymore. Do you turn to your phone? When you see him at the grocery store, you duck and run. You've made plans to sail the seven seas, buy a ticket on the next Titan submersible. You wait for Elon Musk's to build a colony on the Mars on Mars. But will it really work? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. If he's calling you to something, know it's for your good and for the good of others. As Chuck Smith used to say, if he's guiding, he's going to provide. So there's really nothing to fear when the Lord is with you. But ultimately, choice is yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for your kindness towards us. And I pray, Lord, that uh, today, as we study your word and as we look forward to this next year, it'll be a year where we desire to draw near to you. We know that you have a compassionate heart that you desire to give people chances, second chances, third chances, fourth chances, over and over and over again every day. And we want to be like you in that, God. We want—we don't want to run away from the things you're calling us to do. Uh, we don't want to ru- run away when we're unwilling to give people chances, God, second chances. Uh, we want to be like you, Father. And so I pray, God, today that we might understand your heart and be transformed by you, that we might Put our faith and our trust in you and and come near to you, Lord, and live our lives near to you, Lord, and no longer try to get away, God. I pray, Lord, if there's any of us who are planning to run away from something that we should stay, I pray, Lord, that you would help us, God, with that, that you give us the strength, that you would give us the heart to do that, Lord, to be obedient to you, Lord, and submissive to your will, God, and I pray, God, you would bless us in that endeavor. God, we thank you, Lord. Pray that you'd bless this church, God, as we go forward into the new year. Thank you, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.